Happy Halloween, everybody. We hope you're doing some safe trick-or-treating if it's possible or finding another way to celebrate. If you ended up watching this crazy cult film, we hope you got something worthwhile out of it because we are still searching for meaning. Suspiria is a remake of the 1970s film Suspiria, which sat in a trio about these horror fantasy characters, the three mothers, one of them which was the mother of size, the mother of darkness, and the mother of tears. There were three films actually done, and we'll get more into that as the show goes on. Suspiria, though, really focuses on this dance company which fronts as a witch covenant, and the supernatural elements kind of come together in some of the most grotesque horror scenes to date. In comparison to a lot of the recent horror, it's much more vivid and pays homage in its cinematography to the 1970s through these quick zoom-ins on characters, lots of shaky cam, and an overall choice to use 35mm film in production. We're excited to delve into the historical context, the previous films that have come before, and talk a little bit about the scenes we appreciated and the things we're still questioning about this film. With that, let's get going into a summary of the film. This film is told in six acts and an epilogue. The director, Luca Guadagnino, who also directed Call Me By Your Name, builds on the 1977 story of a witch coven posing as a dance school. This retro-style horror film is filled with doubling, mirroring, and false fronts. There are literal rooms behind rooms, but there are also metaphoric plots behind plots. Susie, an American girl from Mennonite, Ohio, moves to Berlin in order to attend the prestigious Marcos Dance Academy. After experiencing nightmares and constantly hearing eerie sounds, it becomes clear something odd is going on. Meanwhile, the viewer is enthralled in a narrative involving Jungian psychologist Joseph Klemperer, who represents an emasculated patriarchal type figure who is accused of not believing his female patients. Guadagnino's slow, lingering build of suspense culminates in a final bloodbath of a scene where it is revealed that Susie is Mother Suspiria, and the decrepit, rotting woman who the viewer thinks is Mother Suspiria is actually fronting. This all ends with Susie sacrificing a lot of these nude women with the help of a cloaked skeletal figure. This film embodies the elements of a fever dream, but it's unclear what exactly it's about. Guadagnino claims that this film is, quote, a fierce showcase of the female artistic experience, unquote. And while this is supported by an all-female cast, with Tilda Swinton actually playing three characters, two female and one male. And funny enough, she's playing three total characters, one of them being Mother Marcos, who is the fat, rotting witch who is trying to claim more of these females to continue her energy on. One of them is Josef Klemper, the psychologist. And the third one is Blanc, the main dance teacher and the one who starts to aid Susie throughout the film. Yes, and while the all-female cast and multiple castings of the same actor supports this feminist idea, it kind of falls flat. So what is this film even about anyway? It seems the Berlin Wall is very physically present in a lot of shots. 
The date, 1977, evokes a lot of history, both having to do with the USSR and its communist affairs, as well as reconstruction of Germany. There are notes of unprocessed emotions and deep-set trauma, but I'm not sure it's fully realized. Yeah, I had a hard time grasping at what the purpose of the film was. Mm -hmm. It evokes strong emotions from you throughout the film, partially relying on grotesque images alongside suspense. Yes. But the end can be unsavory and unfulfilling at times because the culmination is so raw. So some might say that it is an admirable thing about this film, that it chooses to not dull down anything about it. Others might argue it goes over the edge. Yes, we're first going to address the context, both in relation to the older film, the 1977 film, and also Germany, the Berlin Wall, and kind of a little more history what was going on there. So starting with the first film, Argento's Suspiria also takes place in Germany with a female protagonist of the name of Susie who attends a prestigious ballet school. While settling in, she feels ill, hears noises, similar to Guadagnino's Susie, and she soon discovers that this ballet school is actually a witch front, and it is controlled by three mothers of the dark underworld, the mother of tears, the mother of sighs, and the mother of darkness. The title, Suspiria, is derived from the Latin phrase Suspiria de profundis, meaning sighs from the depths. The original film's director, Argento, noted that he pulled this title from the 1845 English author Thomas de Quincey, who uses that Latin phrase, Suspiria de profundis, as a conflation of hellish torment and erotic ecstasy in his series of essays of psychological fantasies. In the most prominent of his essays, titled Lavena and Our Ladies of Sorrow, the author de Quincey imagined a trinity of sisters who variously embody all the dark aspects of the human existence. So Our Lady of Tears, Our Lady of Sighs, Suspiria, and Our Lady of Darkness. One thing to note here is that Thomas de Quincey also was an opium enjoyer, and a lot of these visions came to him on various drug-induced trips, which you definitely see in this film and you feel, especially in the color palettes that are used. In the few scenes that I've seen from the 1970s version, they used very colorful, acid-based patterns, and you get a little bit of that homage in this film as well, especially with the dream sequences. Why do you think he went with Lady of Size as the terrifying aspect of human existence? Well, I feel like a sigh, depending on the context, could be a sigh of fear, a sigh of sadness, or a sigh of arousal. I don't know. It's an interesting conflation of a bunch of human emotions. Yeah, tears and sighs can both be evoked in multiple different emotional states. Yes, so they're not necessarily one-dimensional. Yes, very multi-dimensional. Darkness could even be argued, but in that analysis lens, I think that's the weakest one. Yeah, it's no coincidence that this 2018 Guadagnino film takes place in October of 1977, the year that the original film came out with a protagonist of the same name. But we also don't really know how this 
2018 film is tied to the original? Is it a prequel? Is it a retelling? Is it sort of a parallel story that takes place in a similar world? There are significant plot differences between the two, most notably the difference in how female characters are viewed and the ending where it's revealed that Susie is Mother Suspiria. You have this empowering moment as the director describes it, and this is not necessarily present in the older version, which sits more in the traditional horror sense that this female character is able to escape through some witty movements but does not give her any empowering sense over the darkness. It's worth noting that in homage, Coronino takes many elements, such as the usage of 35mm film, which is very prominent. For me, it was hard to watch, but it introduces a very retro look to the film. He also uses a lot of the 70s classic film techniques, but notably... He chooses to omit some of the classic elements of the story, including the color palettes, which have been changed. In some of the research that I had done about the first film, it was also pretty widely respected in the horror genre as being a defining film and a cult classic. Mm -hmm. Quentin Tarantino is known for really having loved the original film. And that's interesting because... I was thinking about the final climax scene of the 2018 film with all the blood. And I was thinking of Tarantino's films also. And kind of how we talked last week about Tarantino's spectacular display of violence and how in films like Django Unchained and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the way he uses blood, it's horrific, but not really disturbing. No. A lot of times it's comical. Yeah borderline comical when here i'd say the use of blood is on par with tarantino but not in any way comical so maybe in the future we'll have to take a look at the first film too i'm not sure that it's necessarily going to add a lot to this movie because this movie goes in such a different direction and separates itself from that initial version but it was funny to me that this was a remake in the line of all the remakes that have been done. You look at Batman. How many times has goddamn fucking Batman been done now? Yeah, a lot. Robert On Patterson? to a new one. Yeah, with Do you Robert... think Robert Patterson will be a good Batman? Isn't it Pattinson? Robert I, Pattinson. Will I Robert actually Pattinson. think, yeah. You think so? Yeah. I think he's one of those actors who actually is a great actor but because he's known as being twilight his talent gets dampened a bit but we saw high life and i thought he did a good job there that's another movie that's another cult film yeah very distinctive crowd who would enjoy that distinctive crowd really a lot i'm still on the fence of whether i really enjoy these films or not me and you have started seeing more of these films that toe the line between being entertaining versus being an exploration into human emotion and going away from the entertainment industry and mm -hmm. more towards the artistic expression. In my movie watching experience, I don't know if I'm always going to go and choose that film to watch, which plays to me on what do I go to the movies to do? Yeah, but I also think that can be a multifaceted question because like you're saying, maybe on a Sunday night when you want to decompress, this may not be a first choice. We talked a little bit about this in the last episode, that you prefer this type of movie or movies which ask a critical question versus more entertaining cinema. Yeah. 
And I do prefer these movies just because I cannot help but to analyze. Wow. When I watch Marvel movies, I get hung up on all the plot holes and all the inconsistencies in continuity, etc. that I'm like not even enjoying the film for entertainment. Do you think that Midsummer falls into this category of film? I would argue that Midsummer does a better job of being both an entertaining movie and asking a pointed critical question of the audience. While also exploring human emotion. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where the artistry hits its point because it makes it accessible to people. And like in my literature preferences, I like books that I think are more accessible to a wide range of people, partially because they're not so cryptic that it requires somebody who's really willing to get entrenched in it to glean something from it at face value there's still a lot of meaning and it's emotional and can be inspirational or relatable to the viewer but if you were to think about it there's more there as well and in this light i think midsummer is a great example of a movie that tells a story that is compelling to the viewer at face value and is entertaining but beyond that, plays into many different class levels and asks pointed questions of the reader. In order to contextualize what was going on in Germany at the time of this film, I think it's important to understand the events from World War II that led to the construction of the Berlin Wall. So following World War II, Germany was split between the Allied powers, which included the Soviet Union. The U.S., England, and France pushed for liberal market economies, so this is more of a capitalistic-based economy, while the Soviet Union favored obedient communist nations. They wanted to keep Germany weak in order to, in some ways, punish them for the acts of World War II, but also keep their economy unstable so that Germany would feed the Soviet Union. Because of this difference in ideology, Germany was split into the Federal Republic of Germany, the west part of Germany, owned by U.S., Great Britain, and France, and the German Democratic Republic, known as East Germany, owned by the Soviet Union. This establishment of East and West Germany was known as the Iron Curtain and was one of the key parts in the Soviet Union's reign and the Cold War. Weirdly, Berlin is in East Germany, but because of some trade agreements, the U.S. kept control of Berlin. So it was sided with West Germany, although location speaking, it was in East Germany. It became a conflict of interest because people could exit from Berlin in East Germany and go straight to West Germany via a bus. So it started to weaken the Berlin economy because people were taking trips into Berlin and migrating out of it. And to be specific, Berlin had a dividing line too, so it was split between an East and West Berlin, which became representative of the East and West Germany conflict. So, to force people to stay in East Germany and East Berlin, the Soviet Union created the Berlin Wall. Construction started in 1961, and then in 1965, a concrete fence was established, and it had this like giant rolling tube at the top to prevent people from climbing over. Eventually, it became very much like a demilitarized zone. Overall, about 5,000 people were able to escape between 1961 and 1986, but 138 people died. A great portion of Suspiria is spent with the Berlin Wall in mind. It shadows many shots. And this cultural juxtaposition into the 70s was new. 
because the early film did not have this Russia communist element. But in the greater arc of the story, did it have meaning? I don't think it means anything necessarily. I think there's an obvious hope for association based on those striking shots where right outside the dance school, the Berlin Wall is standing. But that's it. It doesn't fold into the plot. It's more parallel to the narrative. Part of the story has to do with the 1977 hijacking of a Lufthansa flight, correct? Yeah, well, throughout the film, we get these flashes of footage from the 70s, and it's real footage of actual historical events. One of these events is when the Popular Front of the Liberation of Palestine hijacked a Lufthansa flight headed to Germany in an attempt to negotiate the release of imprisoned Red Army faction leaders. And so we get this footage, and there's a little talk about it in the dance school when Olga is concerned about where Patricia is, and we discover that there's speculation that Patricia might be part of this radical group against the government. Again, it's present like the wall, but it's not really folded into the plot. Yeah, there are symbols which are maybe paying homage to when the film first came out in the cultural context of when Suspiria, the 1970s version, came out. But overall, in the greater scheme of the movie, it doesn't seem to add, and given that this movie already has such a long runtime, it doesn't seem a beneficial element to further the story along. Right. I think it was an attempt to, like you said, tie to the original film and also because this film kind of picks up right where that film left off in the 70s, in 77 specifically. There's an attempt, but it doesn't work. Olga, in one of the opening scenes, raises questions against Blanc because she's questioning where Patricia has gone and questions if she's even made it home and feels there is something happening that is off, which is totally spot on. But in the beginning seems really jarring and potentially like she's lying in some ways. The establishment from the beginning is that there is a psychologist and he is treating this patient, Patricia. And from that initial point of view, it's hard to believe Patricia's story is true because she's in therapy and you're not sure if this is a real event or it's a way of her processing through something. And her behavior is very erratic. But I think the association of a Patricia to this radical group and the Berlin Wall and even things like the Holocaust and the Cold War, it's all still a very loose association to the central plot of the movie. And so it's hard to draw those connections. Yeah, you would expect from a viewing standpoint that if so much time was spent establishing the historical context and it was put into a very specific portion of time that they would carry more significance into the plot. One thing that's coming to me now is maybe there was politics about when this movie was put out in 1977. Maybe there was some reaction in West Berlin. So perhaps it was an homage in that sense. But from viewing this film as a whole, it doesn't seem to add a whole lot. And for having a 2 hour 15 runtime, you would expect that they would edit some of this stuff down if it didn't carry as much symbolism. Yeah, it was really long. One way to read this, which 
does not necessarily acknowledge the Soviet Union's presence in Berlin, but acknowledges the events of the 40s and World War II, is that the Covenant stands for a concentration camp in the Holocaust. And under this analysis, you would view the witches as Nazis. Mother Marcos is a false prophet in the sense that she is spewing out, I need all of these other people to die for me to continue living, which is reminiscent of Hitler's vision for the Aryan race. Further supporting this is the idea that Yosef had a wife who died in concentration camps, and he feels this guilt as showcased by the Aryan papers. But this analysis really runs into complexities very quickly because you have Susie, who is from the United States, and we're not sure if she is Mother Suspiria the entire time or if she becomes Mother Suspiria through the timeline that she enters into the Covenant. You could say that she is the liberator or the United States and the Allied powers coming into Holocaust camps and killing lots of Germans and Nazis and imprisoning them to then start to try and rebuild this nation. Hmm. And in this analysis, Blanc then becomes a point of controversy because she might be a Nazi SS who is forgiven and then is allowed to live going forward. You could even take it so far as to say that Suspiria wipes the brain of Yosef at the end of the film. And what does that mean if the United States is wiping the history from World War II out and is no longer wanting to remember it? And that's a pretty hard thing to swallow, that maybe we are forgetting horrors of World War II, and maybe even the hooks could be playing into this, of the cattle reference, that these hooks are just hooking people up and everybody within the covenant is just being treated as an animal getting raised to continue this one race, which is the witch race. Hmm. But I am not fully sold on that analysis yet, but I think it's one way to view this film. I think it's intriguing. I think it's a bit of a stretch. But also, there's not much else that you can really go off of. And it's hard because, yes, it takes place in Germany. Yes, after World War II but also 1977 and the Berlin Wall and the Cold War and everything else going on. Like, how does that play in? Yeah, it's definitely nuanced. It's very nuanced. One point that I want to touch on really quickly is the suicide that happens at the dinner table. So when they're all voting of whether Mother Marcos should stay in power or Blanc should become the new head of the Covenant, the Coke bottle glasses woman just gets up and like commits suicide which to me is one of the most hard to interpret parts of this film because it's pointed and it's very abrupt yeah we don't know her name and all we know about her is in a few shots we see distress on her face but that's it yeah from the nazi viewing you could say she was one that started seeing the liberation happening or saw it coming and committed suicide to protect herself and her interests. But again, this feels like a stretch and does not feel genuine to me because it's with a poorly established character. I think it's, again, an intriguing read, but it is hard to think about, well, what's the greater point? Yeah. 
Don't forget the past. But beyond that, there's so much more going on. If that is the driving message, it could have been clearer. What did you make of that last quote from Mother Suspiria slash Susie? Where she says, we need guilt, doctor, and shame, but not yours. So who in this reading does Joseph Klemper represent? I'm not sure. I want to say a person within Germany. It kind of works, but that quote could also work in terms of understanding these women as witches. But she's saying this to one of the only male characters as a woman. So it could be along the lines of, we need guilt, but not your privileged guilt. Because even though you may have guilt, you're still in a position of privilege. Which is more that feminist read that Guadagnino claims is present here. Before we go into the witches portions, I want to quickly touch on the doctor and Tilda's portrayal of a male character. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was excellent. She has some great quotes. Delusion is a lie that tells the truth, which is something Dr. Klemper says to Patricia. And also that love and manipulation, they share houses very often. They are frequent bedfellows. Hats off to her for being a very versatile actress. Under the feminist lens, it doesn't necessarily scream feminine empowerment, but it does break the traditional ideology that people of a certain sex have to play that sex within film what's a witch and how is it working in this film did you see that they're doing a new witches remake i think it's a first time it's got an all-star cast octavia spencer is playing one of the main leads anne hathaway is in it oh no way it's got some heavy hitters i loved roald dahl as a kid witches witches they've been portrayed many different ways most recently in the witch in defining witches objectively broadly and in the western tradition witches are women who band together to fight against oppressive forces why is there no inclusion of supernatural forces because the supernatural doesn't exist right are we saying that witches are real yes The contemporary idea of a witch stems from these older ideas of witches where the supernatural wasn't necessarily involved. Salem witch trials. What supernatural things were involved in the Salem witch trials? All the Salem witch trials were were women who were not acting within their social constitution and if you act out or if you don't want to marry a man if you want to work if you want to like wear pants you're a witch i don't think anybody got hung at the salem witch trials for wearing pants (laughs) maybe not wearing pants no i i get what you're saying from a historical perspective yes of where witches came from and the initial conception of witches this definition i agree with yes but the historical roots and the current definition i think are different but how are they different When our contemporary understanding of witches has to stem from somewhere. When you think of a witch, what do you think of? Do you think of a group of women? My brain having been educated. Oh, (laughs) big brain. In my brain, when I think witch, I think of women who did not fit in the social code granted to them. So in your mind, you don't have any image of... The green witch wearing the pointed hat riding a broomstick. I have an image of an Elphaba figure. 
Sure. Okay. That's what I'm referencing when I say the modern version. So your definition is counter to that, which I don't think is a bad thing at all. But is it counter to that? What do modern witches do? Modern witches were a, a figure of horror. But what do they do that's so they horrifying? enchant spells. They lure people in and eat them up. You could think of the witch from Hansel and Gretel who cooks children, eats them. Is that a witch? Yeah, she's a witch. Oh, well, because I'm also thinking of, if we're talking about contemporary witches, I'm thinking about Wicked, like Alphaba from Wicked. Yeah. I'm also thinking about Kiki's Delivery Service. So you're contextualizing witches in the historical sense, but you yes. do have some belief that that historical context has a place at the modern version still. Yes. And I differ in my interpretation of the modern witch in that I view it as more of a reference to like haunted houses where you see people in pointed hats brewing things and casting spells which are evil at their core nature. Yes. You think that they're completely different. I think they're related somewhat. I think they're related in the sense that it's a derivation of that. Okay. But I do not think that historical link of like a group of women is necessarily associated anymore. So when you were watching this movie, mm -hmm. did you think that they were these kinds of witches that cackle and brew potions? And I think there is homage paid to that with the laughing sounds because those laughs are very eerie and I love that portion of the audio. Mm -hmm. They can hypnotize. Yeah. Yeah. And the disillusion that Yosef undergoes where he thinks his wife is alive. Those are all the supernatural elements. But that is never truly paired with the common wicked witch of the West, of the one like a kid would dress up as at Halloween. Okay, yeah. Yeah, they're different. If you're going for Halloween and you're going trick-or-treating and you're growing up as a witch, do you just go with your friends? What? You could be considered a group of women who band together to fight against oppressive forces by going out and trick-or-treating as a group of women. So are sure. you considered a witch? So you just go out in your normal clothes and say, I'm a witch. Well, the difference <laughs> the difference there is that the contemporary understanding of a female's place in society has changed significantly. And actually, I would challenge you and say that the supernatural elements and your understanding of which is actually rooted in history. The roots from the Salem witch trials and what people were expected to be doing how horrific the Salem witch trials are, sowed the seeds for the common development of the witch. I agree with that. And so from that definition then, witchcraft is often a manifestation of men's fear of women's power. Because what these women at the Salem witch trials were accused of, they didn't actually do any of those things. It was just the men in power had feared that women are gaining a little bit of power. Yeah. And so even the modern idea of a witch, like what do they do? If they're casting spells, that's their agency, their autonomy. They are controlling and having power. I agree. I would contest your definition that it fails to acknowledge the fairy tale aspects of the witch culture. Okay. That there are roots in Hansel and Gretel, for example, that established witches previously and that the historical context linked the fairy tale witch to women at the time. The root origin was a fairy tale creature that was capable of giving a potion and enchanting something like a broom to fly. Yeah. 
And so your definition, to my understanding, you're essentially saying witchcraft is a manifestation of men's fear. And I see where you're coming from in the historical context. From the fairy tale context, though, witches were capable of enchanting people with potions for sinister intent, regardless of their gender. I'm thinking now of even like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, mm -hmm. when the one housemaid is pregnant and they take her to the witches. That was what, the 19th century? And you still have this notion of a witch. And all they were, and why this girl was taken to the, quote, witches, was because witches use alchemy and have an understanding of the natural world for healing properties. And it's a way that they can sustain their life independent from men. Yeah. No, and I acknowledge that there is a very dark past to witches and the use of witch as a way of ensuring that women stayed oppressed because it Thank allowed you. men to essentially fearmonger against women yeah. and prevent them from saying that the, your intellect and your creativity are what allowed you to do these things. So in the film, there are three main witches. Mm -hmm. So we have Mother Suspirium, Mother Lachirmiarum, and Mother Tannenbaum, which is definitely not Tannenbaum, but it is what it is. So that stands for size, tears, and darkness. So just to be clear, Susie eventually becomes or is already Mother Suspirium, and she's just in hiding to try and cleanse this clan of witches. All of the older cast members that are ruling the Covenant, those are all witches. But there are three core mothers who are the strongest witches of all. They really don't touch on the Mother of Tears and the Mother of Darkness this much. Mother Marcos is a witch, too, who is using her powers to absorb the life of these females. And Susie was going to be sacrificed to Mother Marcos to give her a new body because she's obviously decrepit. So Mother Marcos poses as Mother Suspiria, but in reality is not her and has been this false idol and false she's been sacrificing people just to continue her own legacy which is one of the better twists of the film mm -hmm. one thing that i noticed revisiting this film was there are a lot of color changes between blanc and Susie that foreshadow the suspirias within Susie. so for context tilda's character is almost always pictured in a dark dress but Susie always has red hair and is pictured wearing very bright outfits. And in the last scene, they switch. And along with those visual elements, Susie and Blanc have a really weird relationship. I think as actresses, they have good chemistry, though. They do have good chemistry. But it's bizarre in the sense that you don't know if they're like sexually attracted to each other, if it's more like mentor-mentee relationship. There's a lot of pointed and intimate touching, but also that conversation when they're like talking about sex and then Blanc is like, oh, sex with a man. And Susie's like, no, sex with like animals. And it's like, what? There are points that kind of break that intimacy. So it's hard to determine what their relationship is, but it's certainly intertwined. And I think the visuals, as you mentioned, reinforces that. Using witches and talking about women in this film sort of brings about 
female complexity in Suspiria, meaning that women can be sympathetic figures, such as when they are mistreated by a society that favors men, while also being horrible, such as when the Academy students mysteriously disappear and are tortured. This film, because of that female complexity and because of the all-female cast and the point that, you know, witches are prominent women that band together and are independent, it carries a heavy indication of a feminist intent, but I'm not sure it's actually doing that and properly executing that well. Yeah, I like the initial idea that we use the witch character as a critique of the society. But like we've talked about so far, there's a historical background of World War II that wasn't necessarily sexist intrinsically. The Mm -hmm. Holocaust was not sexist intrinsically. So there are these elements that on their own could be really interesting ideas. But in my eyes, it gets caught between the homage to the 1970s film, this new historical context, and this horror tale that causes problems. I agree. And I actually think that instead of having a feminist ring to it, it's in reality doing the opposite. There's sort of a disturbing undercurrent of misogyny epitomized by exactly witchcraft and by the objectification of the female body. The objectification is different in that the male gaze is present, both in the way the camera is used to frame the female body. At some points, it is from a surveillance perspective. It's often surveilling a female body, like a voyeur would. Yeah, the director is a man, and so we have to accept his direction from a real male gaze, and that's in all senses of the word. And especially for a male artist in the contemporary world, when you're working with a medium like film, there's a fine line between using the male gaze artistically and kind of reveling in it. And I feel like this is teetering on the reveling part of it with all of the female nude bodies and the whole display of the female body constantly yeah i hear that and there is definitely a lot of male gaze within this film i have a question for you do you think when saying this is a bad thing what to you defines empowerment of the female body and not going away from showing it as a sexual object or as a beautiful object versus coming into the male gaze and objectifying it. Well, so I think that has to do with the state in which you put the female body, especially the nude female body. But when you place the nude female body in a very emotionally charged environment, I'm thinking about the last scene, for example, It doesn't really give the body credit for being a body, if that makes sense. Part of it has to do with who is representing it. And I think it's really hard for a man to show the female body in a way that is, quote, appreciated. For you, it's about who's directing the background of the scene and what the scene is trying to showcase. 
And for you, it didn't necessarily all align to become a female empowering work. Did you think that the female body was being celebrated here? I didn't see commentary on the female body. The nudity was not a central point to me. Mm. At this point in my life, I am not convinced that white men can make feminist works. Do you think they have a place at the table and should they be allowed to try? My problem with that is why do men want to try and talk about an experience that they know nothing about? Yeah, I see where you're coming from. To me, this breaks down into a difference that the work itself can be looked at, but it very much needs to consider the context which it sits in. Correct. Because if we are only looking at the work, then we're still supporting white men when any woman is making a work of similar intent or of similar theme, but we're not considering that. So they can have a seat at the table. In your eyes, though, it's not credible. Yeah. I mean, people are free to do what they want. (laughs) I, I hear that. Okay. Do you agree? I'm not sure. It's hard to swallow for me in the sense that I want to support films moving in this direction. And sometimes I wonder if that's like you have to support filmmakers that are starting to embrace these topics so that more minority classes can come up. The thing is, is minority filmmakers and female filmmakers are already doing this. We just have to give them attention. If they're are currents that way why not support film going in that direction so that producers when they come to this they can say oh we really like that that film did so well let's continue to go in that direction and give somebody else a chance sure part of me always is like well that is idealistically great but how do we start going in that direction you just do it people are often like well that's great in theory it's system change I think rapid change is possible. Violence is critical for change to actually happen. Revolution only starts, only happens through violence. That's a bold claim. It's true. Talking about bodies, we're going to move into body horror. So Linda Williams is a very prominent film critic who works with horror film, contemporary film. Is she still alive? I believe so, yeah. Oh, she's still writing? Yeah. Oh, cool. This isn't that long ago. 1991? Yeah. It's not that long ago? It's 30 years ago. That's older than you. Okay, that's still not that long ago. She has this canonical essay called Film Bodies, Gender, Genre, and Excess. In it, Williams reveals that there is value to a system of excess in cinema. And the spectrum that she uses for this excess are the genres of melodrama, horror, and pornography. What these three genres have in common is that they all make a spectacle of the body that causes a reactionary convulsion or spasm in the audience. Is spasm here considered uh, splooging? Yeah, For example, good horror films make people scream. Weepies or melodramas make people cry and pornography causes arousal. Regardless, there's always a presence of power and or pleasure. In these films, and part of 
Williams' central argument is that the bodies that are being moved or moving are female bodies, while the men are typically the ones who move the women. Both in an emotional and a physical sense. Exactly. And so ultimately, Williams's point is that the deployment of sex, violence, and emotion address persistent problems in our culture, our sexualities, our identities, and these body genres thus are a cultural form of problem solving that challenge normality and taboo while revealing insight into the fluidity of gender. And that comes in when we think about the audience. Because the female body is doing the moving physically or emotionally, what does that mean to a female audience member? And so Williams thinks that these movies, which have typically been dismissed as misogynistic and sadistic, that they shouldn't be interpreted that way, but instead they should be championed as texts that subvert normative gender roles and i think something is going on here with regards to williams theory about this i think it makes a great point it definitely is not all encapsulating in my eyes of all like of those genres yeah but i think there's a very distinct point here that we use the same routine things to evoke certain emotions that are shared in those three genres. When we start talking about the application of this into the film, I see this, but I wonder in the sense that there are so few males within the casting, how does that change the analysis or like how does it change in terms of lesbian porn? Or if there are only women present in this film do we get away from this or does it still present when it's woman on woman and in this film even though there is a man technically as a witness it's still still a a woman and that's what's challenging here is williams does in her article talk about intrinsic bisexuality and the female viewer who has to almost adapt to these types of viewings because until recently there wasn't really another option. But I don't know. Rather than applying this theory to the film in the sense that we want to talk about gender, I think it would be more productive to address the genre part, the horror elements, but also its conflation with pornography, especially in that last scene where Susie is starting to come into her mother Suspiria transformation and she has this giant wound on her chest that looks like a vagina. Yeah, I didn't get the sexual vibes personally. Okay. But from a horror standpoint, I think there's a lot to talk about here and that almost all of the horror is very evoking of emotions and causes very visceral reactions in the audience members. For example, the scene where the holes start appearing in the floor and she breaks her leg. And truly the parallel dance torture scene does a great job of this, of displaying body horror in the sense of it creates a very visceral reaction. In terms of your comparison to porn, I don't necessarily 
get that same interpretation in my reading of the film. I think there is interplay here too with S&M and the idea of horror as a source of pleasure that by going through horror films we are somewhat aroused. Yeah, that's what I And why a lot of people like horror because it gives them a similar rush that sex gives to a lot of people. And I think in that department I hear this argument. That's more what I was trying to say. Okay. That yes, it is more of... There's a conflation between terror and arousal and that you can get aroused from horror elements and you can also be horrified by sexual elements. Mm -hmm. And so I think that part is prominent in this film. Yeah. Moving along, let's talk about our ratings. Mm -hmm. I went first last week, so let's hear from you about what you thought of this film and what you'd like to rate it. So if you give more than two decimals, you're out. Like, Done. Like to the hundredths place? No, to the no, tens place. To the tens. Okay. This is hard for me because, and I keep thinking of what I rated past films. Mm-hmm. Like part of me wants to give it a six. Okay. But I'm also like, eh, maybe it was a little better than a six because in some ways I think it was better than say Professor Marsden. Maybe 6.5. I think it was stylistically and artistically well done. There was very clear and consistent style of filmmaking with palette, camera shots, etc. That kind of 70s retro style we talked about. And I think that can be enjoyable. Content-wise, though, it was so not even all over the place. It was nowhere, really. Again, there were a lot of parallels that didn't make a ton of sense and weren't really clear And overall, I think back and I'm like, what was this film even trying to say? Because I don't really know. And it was so long that you would think something could have happened a little more substantial than what actually did. And all of this analysis that we gleaned from it came after a lot of thinking and brainstorming. This wasn't the type of film where you watch and you are able to make quick connections in your brain. So I think, yeah, maybe a 6.4. I... On my rating scale, like I've said previously, I really prefer movies that are both entertaining and carry depth. And under this guise, I'm giving this movie a four. A four? I did not like watching this movie. No part of me got anything redeeming from watching this. And I actually think I would have been better off not watching this film. Like to me, this film was kind of a waste of time. Partially because it's so all over the place and because there's no central meaning to it that sticks out to me that worthwhile that aligns with my moral views or is present enough to make me question something about my own life that produces a constructive conversation. I learned some things about the historical context, but that was only in an attempt to glean meaning from the movie. Right. And the fact that I couldn't just take away something on my own, whether it be an emotional change or just, you know, like feeling a special way about it is a problem to me. Yeah, I'm going to give it a four. I think the redeeming features are the cast did a great job. Specifically, I like that they're subverting gender roles. I support that, and I hope to see more of that in the future. I didn't think that it was particularly well executed here in the sense that it held a greater meaning other than the witch sense that you know, witches are so traditionally viewed as this construct of male fear. And they're trying to break that barrier, having Tilda play this mother. But all in all, the film is bloated with too much. 
too many ideas and it was not refined in a way that was meaningful to me. Also, I just do not like 35 millimeter is what I've decided. <laughs> it's really hard to watch. Yeah, that's a good point. 35 mil was hard to watch. When I previously mentioned that Susie had this gash on her chest that looked like a vagina, you can't even tell that that's what it is when you're watching the movie. It's not until you look at stills that are in higher definition that you really see that detail in the prosthetic work Yeah, that is lacking. I also don't love the like blood scenes. I think it's unnecessary and Tarantino does it and it's not my favorite thing that Tarantino does either. Well, it's a lot and it's uncomfortable. And at that point in the movie, you really don't have any idea what's going on. And on top of the blood, there's a red tint to the entire shot and there's a strobe light and it's so much. It's almost stage like. Like, it's almost as if this was put in a production as a play. Sure. And then the whole black creature. There are so many points that maybe if I was smarter or could see more in this film, there would be, like, a lot of symbolism, too. But the fact that it's so obscure makes it hard for me to recommend to people as a film that's worthwhile. Yeah. It was definitely a lot. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. That wraps up our episode for this week. This movie is out there for sure. We hope to watch the 1970s version, which is very well received in the horror world. So maybe watch that one instead. In the meantime, have a happy Halloween. We hope that you are weathering COVID and have a great outfit plan to wear by yourself in your house. And we'll see you next week where we'll be talking about Christopher Nolan's new film, Tenant. In his usual style, this movie plays with time and is a big action film. It features Robert Pattinson and John David Washington and seems to be a play somewhat on the Bond genre. We'll look forward to chatting with you about it in two weeks. If you can, find a way to watch it safely as it's not yet on any streaming platforms. We ended up going to the drive-in. Have a happy Halloween. Hope you enjoy Suspiria if you watch it. Choose the 1970s version, and we'll talk to you in two weeks. Ciao, ciao.